Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, I'm an idiot. I do that all the time too. Um, the best part about a podcast is at any point in time, you can pause it and cut out yeah. whatever it is you didn't like you that you said and just keep rocking. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, with that, uh, odd anecdote on the beginning of this this is the final episode of the chasing tales outdoor podcast uh just in case anybody's wondering that's not getting any easier to say uh <laughs> i thought it would get easier and i am still super excited about the southern collective and what's to come there um but this is it so uh, by the time you're listening to this episode uh the southern collective has already populated across all your podcast feeds so i'm kind of you know saying this is the last episode this is gonna be the last one-on-one -on -one episode in a three-part series where we uh, talked to our three most popular and talked about or controversial guests. Depends on how you look at it. And uh, today's guest is an absolute animal in the deer woods. He's a guy that I see his effort in the Midwest and I just, I, I somehow find myself inspired and I'm not inspired by people's work ethic outside of the deep South very often. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, I've got it made and, you know, you just go into Walmart, pick out your buck, take it home. He's smiling. Cause we were talking about this earlier, but uh, in all seriousness, dude, I don't think I've ever seen somebody work as hard as you do um, and just continue to be positive. We've got the legendary, and I do mean that seriously, the legendary Jake Bush on the line, dude, what's popping. Uh, I'll tell you what, man, I feel very honored to be the last Chasing Tales episode. I feel like that is just unbelievable. It's been, what is this, our fourth or fifth podcast we've done throughout mm -hmm. the years. It's yeah. been a fun ride, man. It really has been. I'm really excited for your future and what you guys are going to be doing. And I think the sky's the limit for you still. I really do. So hopefully I'll get over on that show eventually and we'll talk more deer tactics and deer hunting. But yeah, very excited to be here. Thank you guys for continuing to listen to these podcasts and listen to me ramble on and i really appreciate it but uh yeah let's get into this thing dude listen this is this has been awesome i remember scrolling through uh instagram several years ago 
and there's this dude who's just out there grinding. And I'm talking like the kind of grind that Dan Infault would have been jealous of, right? And uh, it was funny because you and I moved through similar phases of life at the same time. We had kids about the same time. We had young boys. And so we kind of talk talk about that a lot. I know Charlie's the 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 light of your life uh much like walden is mine and and we're, we're this just the other day we were talking about hey i can't wait to spend more time with them in the woods and like the involvement um the only thing that i lack behind you is i'm not you know crushing absolute monsters uh but you know my freezer's full and that's kind of my my barometer for success it's, it's a little different but I, i'm curious man and this is kind of a a hierarching topic from the time you killed that first buck in Ohio, that really big one that I reached out to you about to today, has your approach changed at all? Has your strategy changed at all? Or are you basically just applying the same playbook? So I'm, I'm basically applying the same playbook, but I do take very small things and I tailor them just to suit what I think I need to evolve on throughout the years. Mm -hmm. And like last year, I made a mistake and I tailored my program the wrong direction, it came back to bite me just from unanticipated things that happen but um so so it's always very small and and that example was i almost got a little bit cocky i'll i'll say i got a little bit cocky in the areas that i had and just felt like you know what i fine tuned these things over a few years they're really good spots they'll have a they'll have a deer i want to chase in it and you know i've talked about it before i always shoot for about that 170 inch goal up here in ohio and so i went into it with just assuming I was going to have a good buck in one of those areas. And I really bailed out on all my backup plans. So I had five core spots that have all produced very good deer in the past, but EHD last year hit all five spots. And when that happened, I mean, now I'm left with no deer to chase and I went into scramble mode. And if I would have just stuck to the plan that I've had in the past and had success with, I would have had a different you know, I, it would have probably been a whole different season for me because I would have found that deer earlier because that's a spot I've been in the past where I ended up getting on that deer. So for me, I think evolution as a bow hunter and as a person is very important. And I think we need to constantly be thinking about ways that we can grow and adapt and evolve and become better. But I do think that there's a lot of mistakes made along the way and that's okay. That's the way that it's supposed to work. It's, you're not supposed to get everything that you do right. And so I'm just taking what happened last year this year i'm taking the exact opposite approach i'm going back to my roots the way i used to be as far as the strategy goes where i'm just covering ground with trail cameras you know i'm going to run in ohio i'll have 65 cameras this year and i'm going to run them in probably 50 different systems i'm just really broadcasting them out there and i'm just trying to locate as many deer as possible again i'm getting back to my roots because i've always had success when i find numbers i'll find one or two really good ones and it just makes a lot more sense in my head as opposed to putting all my eggs in one basket because of, you know, other things going on in life. So I'm finding ways to get out in the woods, whether it be right at daybreak or right before dark or, mm -hmm. you know, on a lunch break, I'll go out for two hours and I'm trying to take smart, like sh smaller, shorter trips. So instead of going out for like we've talked about before, you've seen me do, you know, I, I used to go out for 12 hours and I'd spend, you know, sun up, sun down, putting cameras out. Now I've prioritized that better to suit the family needs as well. And hey, can I, can I go put a camera up in this system? I'll be gone for two and a half hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. That's no big deal. It's lunchtime anyways. He's down for a nap. And so I just zoom out, put my camera out, come back. And I can do that every day. I can do one or two of those a day. 
mm-hmm. spread it out and I'm not going to have the same like upfront workload to do. So, so yeah, for me, it's really, you know, I tried to evolve a little bit too much, I think, and I'm just going to come back to my roots a little bit and what works. It, we were talking about you last night on the first, the first SoCo podcast. And, um, we were talking about how, uh, the Southern hunters are at a, um, you, you could look at it as like an advantage or a disadvantage. Um, and, and I kind of fluctuate depending on how I look at it. I look at it as I'm, I'm lucky and I'm fortunate and privileged to have a rut that I can just chase everywhere, like all the time. I mean, I can just bounce around anywhere in a four hour radius and basically hunt the rut from not basically I can hunt the rut from October all the way to February in different, different parts of, of the deep South, um, with very minimal effort too. And so, we were talking last night. I feel like I'm at a bit of a disadvantage because I don't know what I'm good at per se, because we don't have a defined early season where they're in bachelor bucks. We don't have a defined early season. The the white oaks are dropping and you can catch them coming, you know, staging here. We don't have a defined pre-rut, post-rut and post-rut. And then you don't have that defined late season when if you can find the only food source, that's, that's really a high, a high quality food source. And I feel like there's a part of me that, that wonders um, what, of those subsets I'm actually good at because instead I kind of have to keep a tab on all of them all the time. And I feel like that maybe takes away from my woodsmanship in a sense. I, do, would you def- still define yourself as kind of like that early season guy that's going to get them? Yeah, I would. And just because the the way that my process has been tailored over the years, it's, it's very focused on that early season. Like I could go out and spend all this time scouting with a, like more of a Ryan Glitzky approach, for example, where Ryan is a guy that goes out and spends honestly just as much, if not more time in the woods than I do, but he is going into it with a rut focused mind. And so he's looking for like major convergence and he's doing that on such a, on such a finite level. It's unbelievable, but you know, the smallest, most faint trails you've ever seen. And like these little micro signs that a deer has walked through this area and all sorts of really cool things. But he's he's going out and having a totally different mindset. And I could do that. Like I could go out with that mindset. I just for me, I just feel like in my own head, I build up this confidence throughout the years of, hey, early season is when they're most vulnerable. At least the big deer that you're after is the most vulnerable. Like that deer is going to be making mistakes the first seven to 10 days of season. There's just no denying that fact at all. So for me, I say, okay, you know, I'm after this chase of this 170 inch deer again, and his most vulnerable time is going to be the first seven days of season. I need to figure out how to capitalize on that. I just have to do that. And so that's, I take the approach to figure that out. And it's, you know, that we've talked about that approach before. I would say that I'm becoming more and more glassing focused and another thing i'm doing a lot too these are all like micro evolutions but another thing i'm doing a lot too is just utilizing tracks a lot more than i used to i used to pay attention to them but now i'm trying to take it to a whole different level and you know trying to be able to basically gain the data of the specific track of a deer and then be able to follow that deer as he shifts around just based off track before i even have a camera in some of those areas just trying to be able to keep on his tail a little bit better if that happens. But, but yeah, for me, it's just, man, I've got so much confidence in the fact that I have a system that, that works for early season. It doesn't really work for the rest of the year. I've proven that a couple of times where I get my butt kicked, but if I can get the deer I want to chase it 
uh, like if I know about him in the first seven days of season and I put the right amount of work in and I learn the right things about him and I like check off this list, like, Hey, where's he bedded? What's his preferred food source? What's his destination food source? What's his, uh, community scrape slash hub scrape. He likes to hit, you know, what wind direction does he have these specific tendencies? If I can just check that list off of things that I need to gain mm-hmm. that deer's in a lot of trouble the first seven days. So early season is this magical window that no one kills big bucks, right? Like that is, that is our tree season is for does, right? And that maybe that's not a thing in the Midwest, but it is in the deep South. Typically speaking, that's what you're doing. You're over a water Oak, you're over a persimmon that might be dropping a little early and you're just whacking the first, the first few things that come out. Um, And down here, we find it exceptionally difficult to kill any buck, let alone big bucks uh, early season. Given, and I think that's one of the reasons why our listeners are so infatuated with you is because you do the thing that we just basically write off. You know, it's, it's funny. Like, I don't know if you've, if you've encountered this because you're such a like in the moment guy, you probably don't get caught up in like the institutional wisdom of things. Like you just take the facts as they are, I think. Um, but like deer don't, big bucks don't move during the day right? Like that was the thing, right? Big bucks yeah. don't move when it's windy. Big bucks don't move when it's rainy. And we've got all this GPS data now. That's like, dude, none of that is true. They, they oftentimes are moving more during the day than they are at night, but it's a smaller range rain and wind for some reason in the South, that means they move even more, which just really throws everybody for a loop. Um, what do you think without giving, giving away like the secrets, like, what do you think makes an early season hunt? And, and, and specifically, do you feel like it is summertime scouting that helps you kill the buck in early season? Or is it, is it like the postseason that tells you for the upcoming year? And that's a, that's a great question. I think it's a combination of both. Okay. I think it's a combination of everything going on. Like if you get to, you know, we're a little late in the game this year to have like the 365 year data that I've already collected in some of these spots, just solely focused on that early season approach. But even right now, like if, if you went out and you summer scouted and it's hard to do it right now, don't like it's, you know, it's been 95 up here in Ohio even. So I know it's hot down there Yep. and you hit a spider web every third step and you get 300 ticks on you and you guys deal with snakes and everything else. So it's very, I understand it completely. I know that it's, you know, it's thick down there. So I get it. But I would say that if you just went out and you really did spend like the, the, as much time as you could in the woods with the focus of being, I'm going to figure out how to kill an early season deer. I'm going to try to put some sort of piece together to find a tendency and a pattern of that deer. You just went out and scouted and then you continue to find tracks all and i'm talking all the way up to season like i'm doing these things like we've talked about before and people think i'm crazy i'm going into my best spot and pulling my cameras like five to seven days before season and if i need to do it even later than that i will like closer towards season i will so i'm, I'm continuing this process of checking for those tracks shifting some cameras getting cameras in new areas glassing every single night we glass every single night I'm doing all of these things every single day leading up into the opener to try to capitalize. So I would say, I don't think that one is necessarily more important than the other. I would say that you're going to gain more data in the springtime, in the winter time before green up, but you're going to gain more relevant data 
in the summertime if you can be out there for early season and reason being is when you get the shift like they do i don't know how it works down there i'm not even going to try to you know lie to you but up here when we get that really good acorn shift that happens it's a it's a crab shoot at first because there's so there's acorns everywhere it's ohio it's hardwoods you know what i mean mm -hmm. so if you have all those specific flats already dialed and you have the bedding that correlates to those specific flats and you can say okay you know this one's hot right now so i'm assuming he's bedded here that's a great starting point if you can just get to that point i think that it would help a lot and you know you also have to be very situational with it and that's something where a lot of people still come to ohio and they try out some of the tactics i talk about and they're like hey man i went into this hub system and it just didn't work like the deer went the wrong way like you know that's going to happen 98 percent of the time what i've done throughout the years is i've tailored the systems that i'm in like i'm not even in a system if it doesn't hunt the way that i want it to if i think that there's any chance that the deer are going to get out of their bed and go the wrong way the wrong direction you know it's too thick in there there's no cover and the deer can see me from a ridge top if any of those factors are on the opposite end of what i want i just don't even go in there i want nothing to do with that system so like I think one, I don't know if it's even possible for you guys to do or not, but the one thing that I would, if I like say that somebody was like, Hey, Jake, you're moving to Florida, North Florida, and you're going to go try to kill a buck early season, like good luck. In my head, I would be like, okay, I'm going to get a hold of a bunch of guys that have killed a buck early season. Like I don't like just a buck early season or even deer early season. And I'm going to try to learn from all of them. And I'm going to put that together and then I'm just going to try to go out and find very specific things that set up the way I want. I'm not just going to go walk through the woods and try to make this spot work. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try to find the spot that already works, if that makes sense. And that's something I see, like I said, even in Ohio, people, people will get that wrong. And, you know, every, every system, every you know, acre of woods is going to hunt differently and set up differently. It's really about picking and choosing the ones that you want to target. And then, that's what like the reason that I put so much work in is a to pick and choose the ones that I want to target based on does it hunt the right way does it set up the way that I want the deers here and then the other thing for me is finding the deer so that's why it takes so many miles every year and so many cameras for me to find them it's a you got to find a 170 well I'm only good for one or two 170s a year on camera like I know that people think they're running around all over the place but they really just don't <laughs> it's a real thing man like I've heard multiple you know like it's easy to kill 150 in ohio and you know what there is a lot of 150s but when you get to that 170 mark they're just tough to find so you got to find it and then it has to be in an area that you can actually kill the deer and right. that's that's how you become efficient you know it's it's not that i'm this great hunter that can go into any situation and figure it out on the fly and like pull 170 out of a mud puddle and make him you know come down to this hub scrape in the wrong setup no i'm like i'm very fine-tuned and specific on what i need and where i need that to kill that deer so god dude you talk and i just i have so many questions and i feel like we should just have a jake bush monthly call because i had a great thought and then you said something else i'm like no this is a better thought and then you said something else i'm like oh this is even better so i'm just going to pick the one that i think my listeners would benefit the most from and not necessarily me um you talked about the summer scouting oh, i don't know what i want to yeah we'll go this way and then I'll, I'll queue up the next one you talked about the summer scouting being the most relevant to the current season but that the spring giving you that 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 wealth of information long term right so they're not they're not excluding one another. Um, let's take glassing out of the equation. 
right? Because we don't have that option really in many parts of the South. What does your summer scouting look like to get that recent information in dense hardwoods? So if I'm, there's two different ways that I'll do that. So if I don't have any data in that area, like say that the year I just moved to Ohio, because it is thick down here, you know, I post some mm-hmm. stories where like, it's, it's not what you guys have, but it's, it's not a competition, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, I just want, I like to clarify because yeah. uh, over the past I've generalized things and people are like, ah, oh, that's not right. And I'm like, okay, I understand that. So <laughs> not trying to generalize anything, but what I will say is if I don't have data of the area, I will go in and I will try to actually locate betting. And you know, that's, it's going to be, it's going to be tough in the summer, but when I find a summertime bed that is being used in the moment, that deer is typically going to be there for the time being. And then if I, if I find that it, it depends on the time, on the time frame, like how far into summer you are when you're doing the scouting too, because if you're doing it now, the data is going to be a lot different than if you do it after the acorn shift. So I would say that in my, the, what I've had the most success with is after the acorns drop, going into an area and tearing that area apart. The acorns are already down. The deer have shifted out of the fields or out wherever they were out of their clear cuts back into mm-hmm. the system with the acorns. I'm going to go in there a couple days after they drop, maybe a week after they drop, and I'm just going to tear that system apart. And I've done that. That's That's how I killed my biggest buck ever was going in you know, two weeks out of season and just running up and down every ridge and bumping deer all over the place and figuring everything I needed out. But I would go in and I would just try to find beds. And at this point in the game, I don't know when you guys, when you guys drop velvet down there. Is it like the same? That's where this gets difficult. I mean, do we have, okay. So for instance, around the house, I have bucks running from January 10th to February 14th within 20 miles of the house. So like the velvet Hmm. drop, let's say, just for sake of conversation, let's say late September. Okay. So it's ours is uh, early September. So what I would do is like early September here, I'll go out and start scouting around for fresh rubs. You know, I'm looking for big tracks, looking for beds. I'm looking for some fresh buck sign. Typically, if you find like right after that velvet drops, if you find some good rubs, you're probably in a deer's core area. From what I found, like they're not, in my experience, they're not running around all the woods, rubbing up all over the place yet. It's very specific rubs. The ones I find are normally big and they're normally very aggressive rubs. And that tells me, hey, I found a spot that probably has multiple deer in it. And this deer is aggressive because he wants to keep his land. He doesn't want somebody else to take his land from him. So pay a lot of attention to that. At that time of year, I everywhere that I've ever scouted in any sort of hill country at all, like with any elevation change, I've been able to find hub scrapes and big community scrapes that are used year round. I've never went to an area and not been able to find a year round scrape. That's at least the licking branch is getting used. They're not always pawing up the dirt, but so I would try to put that together. I try to put together finding the bedding that is correlated to that specific food source that's dropping real time. I would try to find some sort of rub sign. I would try to find big tracks and I would try to find a scrape to get a camera on. And if I couldn't find the scrape, I would just put a camera on a trail and that would be how I'm deciding what deer are in there. Now, if I don't care about 
what the buck looks like. And I'm just like, Hey, he's got a big track. He's a mature deer. I'm killing him. My approach would be a little bit different. You know, if that was in season, I would just set up and try to kill that deer in the moment. But if not, I would hang a camera and come back and check it. But I would have that same approach with just that real time data on the, on the specific food source dropping in the moment, as much as I could, I would just continue to do that until I ended up catching up with a deer. And you know, if I had the data, like when I have the data and I already have that knowledge, for me, it's all about validation. It changes a lot. I am literally validating in 90% of the spots down here in Ohio at this point. I'm just trying to validate that the deer I need is there and that the food source is hot. I've already got all the rest figured out. I've already got it mapped on my Onyx and I have all this data and I've got notebooks and everything else where as soon as the deer pops up and the food source is hot, I can go back through my notes and say, okay, this is where these beds were. And then as soon as I say it to myself, it's like a light bulb. I can, I can picture the exact location again. I'm like, okay, this is where I was at. This is where the beds are. You know, I marked down, I would say that my note taking is probably pretty detailed where I marked down, Hey, these are the mature buck beds, or at least I'm assuming they are. These are the, uh, satellite beds. And these are how, like, this is how far each satellite deer can see from its bed. So when I'm accessing in, I could be, you know, I would have, I would, I would be able to follow the Creek, but if I get out of the Creek at all, they can see me. Or if I go around this tree too far, they can see me and things like that. Like I'm trying to put the whole piece together, but so, yeah. So if I don't have the data, I'm going to get it. I need all that Intel. I won't hunt until I have the Intel I need. And I know everybody says that, but you have to actually go out there and just like, Put boots on the ground and do it even if it's uncomfortable because you think you're going to bump deer to me the intel is worth bumping the deer and i would say that the majority of the time if you bump a good one he's he's probably going to come back man and i just had this discussion with heath cisco yesterday about you know it, it depends on your age class of deer too but if you're chasing an old deer old deer are very stubborn and they really have their home bodies and they have core areas and it, in my opinion, it's really hard to bump some of those big mature deer out of the spot that they want to be in. They'll, they'll take that once or twice before they really shift on you. And that gives you everything you need. Mm -hmm. So I would focus on, yeah, I would focus on getting the intel I need. If I already have the intel from spring scouting, I would focus on validation through tracks, through photos, through whatever you can. And, you know, on the glassing thing, I've got a buddy that lived in Wheeling and he moved out West now, but. He was a huge glasser. He would glass all the time, but barely ever on a field. Like he didn't have fields to glass. He would glass like a power line. Like he would go out and find a power line and just sit on it and glass as the deer cross the power line or like a little open patch in the woods or an adjacent hillside. Or he would overlook like, you know, even like swampy stuff and just glass that. He was always, he is always finding a way to just get what he needs. It's really cool to see that because yeah, it's not your stereotypical, like, Oh, I'm glassing a bean field. Like I get to do mm -hmm. it's totally different, but he's finding a way to make that work. And man, he, he is super efficient killing deer. I think he's killed the last three or four years in a row. I don't even know. I don't think he's, I think he's killed his target buck within the first like two days a season each year. And then a minimum of three or four bucks a year. I think last year was five bucks. And he's just, he's glassing areas that people don't think about glassing. So I try to take what he's, what he's taught me and that knowledge and try to apply it to my own strategy now. And when I do that and I become like, 
I just try to be as open-minded as possible to any sort of strategy. And when I do that, I'm like, you know what? There is some spots that I could glass some thick uh-huh. stuff that I've never thought about before. And it might work. You know, it, it's possible. Well, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but it, what you said struck me so applicable to the Southern Hunter. Because what we definitely have are long rows of trees that are very straight <laughs> with roads cut across, cut cut down them, or power lines, just like what you talked about. Um, and Back in the day when I first started hunting the Florida area public land, man, dude, I'm telling you, I got, that was just, I'd hunted private land almost every day of my life up until that point. The public land that I hunted was just largely unpressured. And I kind of felt like I had it to myself. And then I come to Florida and it's like on the second Tuesday of every month, you can hunt for two hours. And on the fourth Friday of every month, you can, I mean, like there's all these little segmented things. And then the deer density here sucks in a lot of places. It sucks comparatively, right? It's still really good opportunities compared to a lot of places. But, um, one of the things I did then, and I just completely got away from it. And I don't know why is in the summer months, I'd go out and I'd sit on the power line with my binoculars. Oh, I know why. My binoculars broke and then I didn't have them for a couple of years. That, that's why. Uh, but I, dude, I'd see like 15, 20 deer in some of these places on public in the summertime and they're just coming and going and, and, and you could tell where their paths were. And I went and found some of those trails, um, you know, with Walden being young, you know, you talked about Charlie, the cub going out for a couple hours. I'm scaling my season back to the hardcore hunting will be December and January. Cold weather, fewer snakes, no yep. mosquitoes, uh, uh, rut right um but i was talking to my wife about ways to get out for just a couple hours here and there and still feed that fire in those months leading up to it dude there's some areas around here that i might just go out there for an hour or two in the evening and just glass and try and see if i can't pick up with a pattern of okay they're coming out right about there and the next time i get there you know go see if there's a trail and walk that trail back in and see where it goes because there is not a wma i can think of you can't find at least one place like that to do yeah and that's i mean it's such a overlooked thing i just don't think a lot of people are doing that and so let me ask you this are the are the deer do the deer down there gravitate towards openings like is that a thing you know it's it's thick i can imagine if i was in thick all day long all the time i'd be like i gotta get the heck out of here i gotta breathe and is is that something they do or or do they just not care so it it, (laughs) i hate no answer in the in florida is linear it's always like it depends right so i'll give you a couple a couple contrasting answers to kind of uh set the stage let's say you're on a sandy pine flat right so if you're on a sandy pine flat and you have a cutover will there be deer there will they gravitate to that yes in the summertime it might be at night because that sandy pine flat is going to be dry and it's going to be really really hot um if it if it is surrounded by water if there is decent cover, if it's been burned and they can tuck down in that shade, then yeah, dude, I mean, cutovers, that's what we call them. So there's no like fields. We have just areas where they staged trees and then they clean that area up and just didn't replant it. And that's going to be where they stage trees the next year. Um, and so you have these huge cutovers that you can go and watch. Um, and yeah, dude, you, you definitely see a gravitation to that, but if it's not managed well, if they don't roll burns through it, then once it hits about chest high, like your chest high, not my chest high, but your chest high. Um, that takes like a season and a half down here. We have such yeah. a long growing season. You've got a window. And so if they don't burn it, if they don't manage it, then you have this um, it largely inedible 
mulberry that takes over a lot of these areas. And so it might be at best bedding. But what it does still create is around that perimeter, you tend to have that transition line. And we had a buddy of mine on Jake, uh, I almost called him Jake Bush, Ricky Bullard. And uh, he hunts buck beds in the South along the perimeter of those high cutovers, just because it creates predictable thermals. It creates predictable transition areas, um, swamp heads a lot. He does. We have these um, bay heads that are like six inches lower than all the surrounding land. And so all the water aggregates right there. And so you have, um, bay trees or a lot of people call them tie ties and it's just this slightly different terrain change and whenever we go a week without rain those tend to dry up and you have an open space and so the deer can tuck their backs up against to the thicket see out into that open space and then they probably have some residual water there as well cooler weather shade all of that stuff uh yeah, so cool. openings that just is... function different here yeah that's i mean that's such a such a cool thing that he picked up on there that's awesome yeah. Yeah. And I, I've not been able to replicate it, but you know, it's, I think it also comes back to what I said. You have like a season and a half, right? I mean, once it gets a certain height, certain things start to phase out. Um, but because we also have a long growing season, woody browse like Greenbrier, it's good to eat from March to November. Yeah. Yeah. So they can always be browsing on it. And then as far as like preferred food sources down there, is it, is it acorn still, or what's, what would you say is like the preferred food source come hunting season or at least early season? Yeah. So I'll, I'll answer this in two different ways. I think fresh burns are your preferred okay. food sources. And we have, uh, when properly managed, uh, Florida is actually the burn capital of the world. We do more b- prescribed burning in this state than most of the Southeast combined. Um, it's just, it's unreal. And when you have healthy burns rotating every two to three years, what you end up is with these monstrous food plots. I mean, just monsters. We're talking thousands and thousands of acres that have all been burnt at once, full of stuff to eat. So I would say if I had to categorize everything, that would be preferred food source number one. And then the second follow-up with that would be chasing the different oak trees as they drop um i'm sure you got a bunch of varieties there but we have we have this weird dynamic where we have maybe close to like 10 or 12 different oak trees here that at any point in time one of them might be a preferred food source we have this um low growing shrubby vine looking oak tree that literally just stays right it sounds like we're in australia it stays like knee high and it'll have it'll have acorns on it you know that big and that bush and that block is preferred outside of all of the others that are around you everywhere. Um, and so you have to put in just a tremendous amount of time to find your super producers that are annual, you know, uh, preferred food sources. But when you find them, you know, like the ground is scraped back. There's, there's, there's tracks everywhere, you know, uh, droppings everywhere. There's crunched holes and caps. I mean, it's just, and you drop a pin, you're like, this is a honey hole. I've got to come back here and check this tree every year kind of thing so if you have say that you have like one of those little shrub what's the name of that thing by the way what do you what do you call that so this is the weird thing about florida we all have like names for for like we have these like nomenclatures like these nicknames okay, that yeah, you put yeah. on stuff um I, I don't know what it's actually called um but i've heard somebody called it like a blue oak or something like that or a shrub oak um let's but, go with, okay so let's say it's a shrub oak so if you find that let's say it's let's say 2021 you found that Mm-hmm. and you put a camera nearby it was getting fed on like crazy and bam there's a good buck on it yeah so now you have that data and whether you kill that deer or not are you going back to those spots where you find those preferred food sources and validating if they're active again 
And then that gives you a good starting point, right? Because mm-hmm. that's kind of my game here is like I was saying with the validation, I, I know where all the white oaks are at. So every year I'll make my loop in these areas. And if it's hot, I get like goosebumps. I'm like, oh man, this is this white oaks dropping like crazy. There's there's going to be a good buck in here. I don't know what he is yet, but there's going to be one here. He's probably looking at me right now. Mm-hmm. And I get really excited. And so like I, I play off that a lot where it's so hard to keep track. I talk about it up here too. Like the deer in the big woods with no ag nearby are the most <clears throat> like unbelievably nomadic animals. Mm-hmm. And they can just, man, they can just move. They move all the time. So I would say that, you know, that's, that would probably be something that I would focus on a lot if I was down there, to be honest with you, is just trying to validate the food and then gain like, like almost historical data of it, but only when that food source is active. So it doesn't mean anything to me if it has a year where it doesn't produce, but if it has a year where it produces again, it holds a lot of weight for me. So here's, this will give you some more context. Um, so I had three trail cameras out on three different scrapes in this block of woods. And I had this buck that was fairly easily identifiable. And what I mean by that is one side was messed up and it was just like this little short crabby thing, right? I got a photo of him on one scrape at like 9am. I'm making the dates up, but I can like pull the pictures and send it to you if you're, if you're interested in the, in the specifics, but it's like 9am. And then on another scrape at 1pm, And then on the following scrape at like 10 a.m., the distance traveled between all three of those scrapes is four and a half miles. Yeah. And so like for me, when I see what you're doing, I'm I'm glad to say hear you say food source because that's kind of what I've boiled it all down to is like I've got to find something that is the concentrating factor. And so, um, you know, if I can find that preferred food source with some form of transition that they can bet in, I feel like I've given myself two or more reasons to hunt that area instead of just the one, which it kind of feels like it's important. Um, but they just move around a lot. Do you witness that degree of, of movement in Ohio or is it a little, are they a little more anchored? I'm curious. So I've seen both. Okay. The one thing that I would say is if you had those three different food sources that were hot and he hit them three times like i would take that data and if he survived and they'll all three of them were hot again the following year i would just hunt all of them on a decent condition for me i like okay i'm gonna go into you know oak a today and hunt this and then tomorrow i've got a south i'm gonna go hunt oak b and i like i get into that a lot where i'm playing the game of i'm just trying to like catch him on the food source i know he's coming to it's just a matter of what day shows up versus doesn't show up but you know what man i mean if if you have the right access and you know, like, you know, Hey, last year he hit this and he's still alive and it's hot right now. Mm-hmm. If you have the right access and the right conditions to hunt that even three or four days in a row, I would just go in and just like play the odds game because, you know, early season, it, it could be all season, but specifically early season, like he's, they're typically going to hit that food source every couple of days from what mm-hmm. I've seen. Do you see the same thing? Like yeah. every couple so yeah. every couple of days, well, man, if it's every couple of days, then that's telling me you got almost a 50-50 shot when you go in there that you're going to catch up with them. And if you sit that two or three days, like, yeah, your odds are going to start dropping, but I'll take that 50-50 shot. And if I find enough of those and I have enough historical data on some of these food sources and enough 50-50 shots, mm-hmm. eventually one of them is going to pan out for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I, I and And that's kind of 
I, there's a lot of people who you're, you're, you're talking to right now that are all going, yes, because that's really kind of what we do, right? Is, is we find, we try and find that, you know, I've heard about, a lot of people talk about, about football, football shaped betting areas where they just kind of make a loop to this betting and they make a loop to the other. And I, and I don't know that it's that um, definable here because everything's flat and there's relatively a consistent betting opportunity everywhere. Um, I'm, I'm curious with that, what is the most unconventional bed that you found? Cause I've got a couple down here that, that, I want to share, but I'm curious, where's the, where's the place where you've seen a buck bed that you're just like, that doesn't make any sense. Oh man. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen them go against everything that I know from like, if they're in hill country, I've seen them go against everything I've ever said and bet on the wrong side of the ridge with the wind in their face and just be completely at like, they have no, they have nothing going for them in that situation. Um, I would say that I've seen them bed like I can get into farm country and farm country. I've seen them bed multiple times right around buildings, like right behind an old barn. And that threw me off for a while. Um, man, I've seen them bed in like a random bush in the middle of a CRP field that doesn't make any sense. And they pop up and I'm like, Holy cow, there's a deer right there. Um, boulders seen them bed around boulders a lot and that one always kind of blows my mind it it makes sense because of the swirling winds you get around a boulder but that would be something that when i first saw that that was very unconventional for me um man i've got a lot of spots where they are oh so so a really good spot there's a road that accesses this piece of public and it's flat ground it's up in northern ohio mm-hmm. and there's a bunch there's a swamp with a bunch of beautiful points that jut out into this swamp and they face all sorts of different directions it looks perfect i went in and scouted it and there was no sign in there and i was like what is going on there's no tracks there's no beds on the points no nothing and i was working my way back to the the truck and i get to the truck and i look out by the road so i've actually driven past this little tiny thicket and i was like well you know that's overlooked i drove right by and didn't even know it existed and i went over there and found three antlers and like 15 beds and they were bedded right i mean like you turn into the driveway and 20 feet away, there's a little, I don't know, a 50 by 50 foot thick patch and all the deer were bedded there because the hunters were going in the woods and into the swamp to try to kill them. So that one blew my mind big time. That's awesome. That, you know, we, we, we you, you hit on something there. We were talking about, we were just talking about this in the podcast in the Patreon community. We were talking about, um, the unconventional areas that you find deer, like finding them deep versus finding them shallow. And there's, there's always this undercurrent right now. I, sp- I think, especially with the uptick in, in public land pressure, that is just undeniable. However you want to quantify it, it's definitely there. Um, and it's led people to start thinking very unconventionally. And there's some spots that you go to, uh, last year, I got a really great co actually, I got a couple really great probably 80 to hundred inch whitetails uh, on camera. And we walk out to this point and we find the beds and we find the historical sign. And, and me and my, my, I call him my deer hunting mentor. Cause that's, that's really what he is. He knows way more about whitetail than I do. And every time I go out, I learn something from him. He's like, dude, this is why they're using it. Look, there's water. They can put their back to it. Like this all makes sense. We're like awesome. So we put a trail camera on it. We're getting all these pictures and then the food source has changed. Um, and the pressure from the year that I hunted it before that I saw the deer moving out to this, this, I, I saw the movement and that's why we went out there. I was like, I could see bucks moving. And I'm like, okay, where they go once we're going to go again and we're going to figure out why. And so we game plan based on the pressure that we saw the previous season. 
And last year that pressure wasn't there. And I have a video of me walking in and I'm coming across this cutover and I am 10 feet from the tree line. I'm talking in the wide open. It is uh, an hour before daylight. And I see the eyes of a doe in front of me, a green light. I'm like, oh, cool. This will be some dope footage, right? So I cut on my white light camera guy that I am. I get my cell camera out. Oh, not my cell camera. Jeez, Byron's going to have a fit with that one. I get my cell phone out and I hit record. What I don't see because I'm fixated on the eyes is that the buck that I'm after is sitting right in front of me inside the brush line bedded down with her during the rut. And it's like pre-rut. He is right on the edge. And he busts out of there and he runs off and I'm just like slack jawed, like what the heck just happened to me, you know, because uh, I, I saw his rack, but I thought it was a dead bush. And so all season long, I did not get but maybe two or three buck photos in those beds. Come the spring, they were back out on those beds. Something shifted. Um but I never saw them use those because the pressure wasn't there. And I told, I told Brett, I was like, dude, if I had just hunted right next to the road, I saw that buck on three separate occasions and he was all up against that field. So now we have a pattern. It's like, if that pressure is hot and hard, then I, then I need to push it back into the woods. But dude, I could have been within eyeshot of the, like bow shot of the road almost. I'd have to have lobbed it, but I could have hit the road from where I needed to have set up to kill that buck. It's just, you think go deep, right? Yeah, I'll I'll tell you what I have more spots now that are and everybody is starting to say this, so it's it's starting to sound regurgitated. But I I truly do have more spots that are I can throw a rock and hit the road. Uh-huh. I really can, and I mean I have some like beautiful scrapes where I'll have a giant buck come down and work a scrape, and he can see the road the whole time. And I'm like, man, people people just drive right by it. And I think there's a lot of factors there, like you know. I try to find those locations where there's not a parking spot or pull off nearby and I'll just walk down the road for a mile if I need to, or, you know, like if there's no median, for example, you know, I'm always trying to find something to, to just give me an advantage to where I don't think people are actually going to go in there. But, but yeah, I definitely see deer shifting around based on pressure a lot too. And it's, it's unbelievable to me, to be honest with you. Yeah. So here's, here's a couple unconventional, uh, well, I'll just give you the one, but, uh, the most unconventional place that I found deer consistently bedding, um, is, well, it's actually two sinkholes. So out in Florida, we'll have these random sinkholes that might go 50 feet down. They might go five feet down, but it gives that little edge. Mm-hmm. And I have walked up in turkey season on bucks and does. I've walked up on them and been like 20 feet from the edge of the sinkhole. And then all of a sudden something rockets across the sinkhole to the other side. And I think they're bedded just off that little edge where they can see across back behind them. If they need to, they can just kind of pivot their head. Um, but we also do a lot of two track excavating. So we have like these two tracks for timbering and we'll dig a hole here, drop dirt, drive a little further, dig a hole here, drop dirt, go a little further. I can't tell you how many deer during turkey season, and this is a pattern I picked up on this spring, that I bust out of those little bowls because you got a swirling wind right there, right? You you, you typically have some moisture that, that continues to swirl. And so you kind of have like a, a, a miniature thermal hub where they can kind of see a little bit at the same time. Um, and those are oftentimes very close to like the parking lot. Yeah, that makes sense. I've got uh, my mind starting to race here. I'm thinking about it. So what was it? Two years ago, you and I did a podcast and I was actually asking you how to hunt very monotonous terrain. Do you remember that conversation? Yes. It's like, so 
that area, like we have in this area of Ohio, a ton of strip mines. They're all mm-hmm. over the place. And when they did that, they had that big musky bucket that they have up here. And like, it's these really wide ponds. And then in the middle of the, like they'll make a circle. And in the middle of that, there will be, a I don't even know what to explain it as. It's like a tower of dirt and rocks. And they'll be, I mean, up to 80 feet tall. Like some of them are, it's a cliff, 300 and... 59 degrees around it and then where some rocks have fallen in the past it's created enough of a ledge to where deer can like scale up it and they'll bet on top of those things and i call them fishbowls because if you get the right buck in one of those fishbowls he cannot escape he is stuck he would have to jump off the cliff to to evade you which is crazy to me that they do this but so i find a bunch of these fishbowls and I put cameras on them and man, uh, you'll have a giant buck literally scale up on top of this thing and bet on top of it and nothing's getting to them. Like the only thing that's going to try to get up there is a coyote. Some of them, I've scouted a lot of them. I actually found some antlers on top of them, but some great beds, but some of them I can't even get up. Like I cannot even physically climb up it. I would need a rope to climb up it and the deer scale right up it. And it's just, they're up top. I mean, I'm telling you, they're like, some of them they're climbing 80 feet almost almost straight up almost vertical 80 feet just finding these little ledges of rocks and and like a little you know pad of dirt Mm -hmm. to just get enough footing to get up there they have to fall all the time they have to but uh the first time i scouted one i followed i was actually following a big track in the winter time a big track and he went right up that thing and i was like well i'm going right up that thing (laughs) and i got up there and i was really worried about about this deer jumping off the the cliff and so I got out of there. I was like, yeah, because some of them are like up to an acre even. They're huge. Mm. And they have acorns on them and ponds and everything. Like it's just like a little island for the deer to never get messed with. And I just like envisioned him laying up there and watching all these gun hunters come through during gun season. And he's just laughing at them. He's like, ha ha ha, like you can't get me. But uh, but yeah, that's that's a really odd thing to me. There's probably going to be a cell cam on every fishbowl in Ohio now after saying that. <laughs> that's that's but but i mean like being observant like that i mean like how how many people do you think have walked past that like had the sign telling them that's where it's going and they just like they were i I, i'm guilty of it man like i get fixated um part of this is that ocd hd adhd that i was telling you about before where i can just like hyper fixate on something i'm like i'm gonna find a great food source and I remember distinctly last year at one point in time, I'm like, I'm going to go back here and check these oaks. I'm going to check back here and check these oaks. And I walked past a scrape the size of the hood of a truck. I'm yep. talking like, and I just, I'm like, oh, cool. And I just keep going. And I'm like 200 yards down the road. I'm like, what are you doing back up? And I go back there and I'm just like slack jawed that I just walked right past it. But you know, that's what a lot of people do, right? They they listen to Jake book, talk, talk about Jake book, Jake Bush, talk about um, preferred food sources on, you know, betting on the tips of points and how much do they walk past instead of just going into the woods to observe the woods for what they are and let them tell them, you know, what's going on. I, you know, that has to happen. I mean, it happens to me all the time. I yeah. do it all the time and I'm, I'm constantly, I'm, I'm constantly checking myself and I don't, I don't, I'm assuming you do the same thing, but like, man, I get, I get lazy. I start overlooking things. I get very like single tracked or one-minded a lot. And like, I constantly have to sit down with myself, reevaluate and be like, quit it. Stop doing that. You know that that's not the right way to be. And I see it a lot. Like with that fishbowl thing, I brought it up to multiple people and their response is the deer aren't better. Like they won't be up there. 
And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm telling you, I physically walked up to one. I'm not like, I wasn't sitting on the couch trying to tell you that they're not up there. I physically was on top of them and the deer are on top of these dang things. Like there's no way around it. And, you know, it's just, I have, I just feel like we get very, very caught up in like what works or doesn't work. And honestly, man, you know, I, I don't think that there's any tactic that isn't going to work at some point in time somewhere. Like I, I don't think there's ever going to be an always or a never in deer hunting at all. I always think that there's going to be, I just said, I always, <laughs> I, I, I think that it's fluid and it's anything could work at any point in time anywhere. And you could have something that totally blows your mind happen, like the deer betting by the road or them betting on a fishbowl or a deer coming down to a scrape at noon opening day for no reason at all like anything can happen at any point in time they can bed wherever they want they're a living breathing animal they can do whatever they want we're just trying we're trying to generalize that as much as possible and just put ourselves in a good position but to do that i think we need to stay as open-minded as possible okay so let's shift let's shift from this to my other thought that i had when i uh, we started on the you remember that that's i do that's impressive. Wow. I, okay. Okay. So to be fair, the reason why I've been looking off to the side is because I, I knew I couldn't keep up with all this and I have a notepad going. So that's what I've been doing. Um, this is a topic that I'm curious to get your input on. And that is you are out there in the summer finding scrapes. How, and I don't know how to quite quantify this. And I knew this was a question I wanted to talk about, and I've been really racking my brain as to trying to find a way to put this into terms for people. I started last year finding scrapes in the summer. They're not everywhere, but you find these scrapes that just stay active. And I'd never really noticed that too often. I've only found it in a couple places where that's been the case. Um, it looks like, because when people follow you, all you do are find these be beautiful active scrapes everywhere you go. But I know that's not the case. I know there's a lot of miles go walked. Can you find some way of kind of explaining to people how often you find these active scrapes and how you think those deer are using them in the in like the summer months? Man, so I would say that in the in the in the good systems, like if I have a system that just has all the factors that I look for, it's got clear cuts, it's got multiple different ages of acorns and different types of acorns, you know, preferably like four or five different types. If I have ag nearby to where I have a very consistent food source year round, if I have very good topography and a bunch of bedding points, I can stack all those things together, like uh, add on no hunter pressure, very little pressure. It's hard to access all these things going for me. I just... I almost always find a hub scrape in that bottom and it's just because of the sheer amount of mature bucks that are in those areas they just it, it is a recipe in the hills to find big deer and i've replicated that exact circumstance in kentucky this year in illinois this year and in indiana as well as ohio so it i've i've traveled across the midwest doing that same thing and like it it holds true it really does i I was actually kind of mind blown with how much it held true when I got in these spots. I was like, oh my gosh, like you got it. How is it identical to like hunting Ohio? All these other states that nobody talks about set up the same way and have the same size deer. So there's, you know, there's a lot more opportunity out there if you start looking at it. And honestly, some of the states have more public and they have better setting up public, like that's surrounded by more ag and stuff like that. But uh, 
But I would say that if I find the right system, it's almost a guarantee, but I don't find the right system very often. I've only got, you know, less than 10 of those in four years of being down here and doing this. A lot of times I'll find like, uh, like they're, it's very rare that I find like the big, like beautiful manicured dug into the ground, you know, broken limbs off all over the place. When I find those, they're just good spots. And I know that like they're just used year round. They're just good spots. But a lot of times if I don't find them and I like the area, I just make a mock now. And I'll tell you what, man, I've, I've gotten really into making mock scrapes in the last two years. And last summer was, it really blew my mind. I was running uh, a bunch of mock scrapes in some of these systems. And I was running one on the edge of a clear cut and it was up higher on the ridge. It wasn't anywhere near the hub down in the bottom, but so really it was a, it was a two-year-old cut and it was basically prime and way down below in the bottom, these deer could wrap around the ridge and go down to a cornfield. And it's an area that genetically is like, if I ever move and build a house somewhere, I'm building a house right out front of this place. Like I'm, because I want to spend every waking minute I can there. It's just, it's a far drive for me now. So I, uh, I, I couldn't find a scrape in there. Like there's old rubs, there's historical sign. There's a couple of good trails coming out of the cut. Like the cut's new, so it doesn't have a bunch of sign buildup around it yet. So I, uh, decided I was going to build a big scrape on the downwind side of that and only like 20, probably 20 feet off of that cut. And I actually ended up sending you pictures of some of the deer, if you remember that. Mm-hmm. And I built this, I mean, big, beautiful manicured mock scrape and I built it at around noon at 5 PM. The same day is when pictures started rolling in of those deer. It was unbelievable how quickly pictures started rolling into those deer. And there, I mean, some of them were some really nice bucks. They all ended up dying of VHD, every single one oh. of them. So the farmer down below in the field found 14 bucks, four over 160. The, the buck I was going to be after, he ended up going 164. Um, huge body though. He was found down in the Creek and then it was just, it was sickening to be honest with you. that whole area. Every one of those bucks is gone. I've watched all those deer grow up. Um, but silver lining, there is, there's a couple left that are, we'll talk there. There's, there's one in particular that is a, a truly one's probably a once in a lifetime deer for me. So, um, but anyways, but so, yeah, so I started getting into the mock game a lot. And if you, I would say that if you can't find them because they are hard to come by, they really are, especially if you're in really thick stuff, man, I would just, I would try to find a, a good convergence near bedding and near bedding where you think the food's going to be hot that time of year. So, so, okay, this food source should be active about this time of year. This is where the bedding is at. If this food source is active, they're coming out of this thicket because I know how your bedding is going to be down there. And it's very hard to dictate a singular bed and it's going to be more about bedding areas. So there's five trails that come out of this bedding area. They all, they don't, they don't all cross, but they all get within about 50 yards of each other right here. I'm going to make a mock scrape right here to pull these deer. And this is exactly what Troy Pottinger does. He's not necessarily finding the convergence. He's making the convergence. And what happens, what I've noticed now is a couple of these mocks that I made a couple years ago are really getting good. Now they're heating up and it's almost like it's, it's like an investment. If you do it right, 
and you go in and you just set up the tree to look like a real scrape and you overspray i use buck fever synthetics i i use all synthetic stuff not affiliated at all i just hey i can buy a gallon of it at a time which is nice and b it's worked for me troy recommended it i went out on a limb bought some and i was like this stuff is is definitely working but if you overspray it and you do that a couple times a year even in the spring if you do that and then you just keep up with it man they just they gravitate towards them and it just gets better and better and better every single year in those areas but you can't just go throw one up in the woods it has to be you have to have a method to your madness when doing that if you use it the right way you do it the right way i i think that you can pull a deer just about anywhere you want if it's within 100 yards okay so let's 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 unpack that briefly um because i've i've kept you for an hour and i don't want to keep you too much terribly longer and actually i've got a dentist appointment i've got a jet to here in a little bit but where are you take out hill country because that doesn't apply to most of my listeners on flat land where are you setting you know what i'm asking even i'll ask you a better question because i feel like people can figure out the where pretty easy but i think this is a better question how often do you set up a mock scrape and you don't get the results you want? I would say that it's probably if if I do it right and if I have like for example, I have a spot here that's flat. I'm going to go through this real quick and then I'll it's going to sure. it's all going to wrap together. Um I have a spot here that's flat and then back home I've utilized this quite a bit too and it's more marshy like we have a lot of marshes and stuff they're mm-hmm. small but they're still marshes and if you don't have like a topographical hub one thing I think you can really focus on is like diverse edge hubs so transition hubs if you can find a transition hub close to bedding and food where you have you know I'm not whatever whatever kind of overcuts you have down there whatever's creating transitions if you can follow those and find a hot spot to where they either they do meet or they almost meet and you can put a bunch of those into that equation you know you got a thicket here and a thicket here and a thicket here and it creates a little triangle i would put that scrape there and if you do that and it's a hot food source nearby and it's a good bedding area it is in my opinion it, it is like a 99.9% guarantee you're going to have the buck you want on that. Really? Yeah, it is. I have, I'm telling you, man, the amount of inventory that I get on those mock scrapes blows my mind. And the the pictures, the bucks that I was sending you, that was, that was like noon, 2 p.m., 3 yeah. p.m., you know, be, because I was in such close proximity to their bedding, they just get up throughout the day and want to stretch their legs. And eventually it becomes that part of them stretching their legs is to go over there and check that scrape because it's still in the cover. It's still, it's still in a spot where they feel safe getting to that. And, uh, the, you know, you can get into a lot of things with that. You can get into actually putting that scrape in an area where the scrape is blowing the scent of the scrape into the bedding area. And so those deer all day long have to sit there and smell it and it just irritates Mm -hmm. the heck out of them (laughs) and you can hunt just off wind and kill that deer as like he can smell that scrape all day long but you're 30 yards off wind and you kill him when he comes out to it before he goes to a food source so if you start stacking those things up with the food and with everything and with all these transition lines you can find like these little these little hot spots and you just make it what you want and once it's established 
they take it over. I mean, you can overspray it to to insert like a dominant buck in the area every year just to build competition, but you you really don't even have to in a lot of circumstances. You know, so we talked about food sources being the concentrating factor. And last year I kind of, I dabbled the year before that I dabbled last year. I, I swear I was going to get more serious about it. And then I found active scrapes and I didn't really have to, right? So I just kind of, it's filled the back burner. It just is what it is. As I was thinking about this year, I'm really thinking that given that we're going to acknowledge all the terrain is somewhat monotonous and somewhat good for betting. You kind of have to pick a couple things to hunt, like a couple factors that and try and leverage them to your advantage. Hot food sources, you've already said that that's an obvious, right? Um, I think cameras and knowing what doe groups are coming into rut when is very important. That's something that Brett has been helping me with. And, and I had tremendous success last year just off of doing that. Um, but I feel like the mock scrape is another one of those factors that you could kind of put especially if you got it going in the summertime and you kept it and you kept it, uh, you did it right. And it's probably a numbers game in, in the South. Cause you're probably looking for a certain type of habitat that's holding a buck and you may or may not know what that is. Um, but I think if you could kind of dial that in, there's a fellow down in South Florida who holds the state record. He shot this just unicorn of a 176 inch buck down there, um, in, near Tampa. All he does is run mock scrapes. And he has he has a formula, and and he's talked about it a little bit. And I don't blame him for not giving out all, all the goods, but he has a certain tree and a certain type of, of habitat, and he puts mock scrapes up there, and he then puts cameras on them, and he monitors the deer. He finds the deer he likes, and then he starts honing in on that area. And the guy kills a lot of really great bucks, like tremendous Florida bucks. They're all kind of overshadowed by that one seventy, but I mean the guy consistently kills deer. And so you look at all these guys like you like him, like Brett, who have these factors that they're leveraging. And it's like, I feel like there's a Southern playbook that's slowly unfolding. Find the hot feed sources, figure out when the doe groups are dropping their does, and then try and leverage mock scrapes for some some component of that. And the cool thing about all three of those is I feel like they are flexible enough that you can find applications on just about any WMA. Whereas you're like, if I'm going in and I'm looking for a thermal hub where, well, it's the South thermal hubs are kind of not present, right? I'm, I'm looking for hot white oaks. Well, I don't, I've got WMAs that don't have a single white oak on them. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you're, if you're looking for those other three things, those are th three things you can kind of find just, or make with a mock scrape anywhere. Yeah. I couldn't have said that better myself. I completely agree with that. I think that it's all about stacking those factors as much as you can. If you can, if you, if you try to take one of those and be successful, like you might get lucky but it's not going to be consistent. But the minute that you start taking your strategy, taking all of these factors, and this is why I listen to so many different people on podcasts, because I want to take all of that information and get all of these things that they're doing. Like, okay, I'm going to take A, B, C, D, E, F. I'm going to create my playbook, like you said, and I'm going to stack those factors in these spots. And when I do that, it just seems like, man, there's success goes up big time. Well, I've got one final question for you, and then we're going to put a bow in this. And it's a question I have to ask you because we just have to. In the current state of the hunting community, I have to ask you this question. Um, and you can feel free to pass. I know Everybody what you're doing the to me. I know what I know. you're doing to me. I know. I know. I know you know. <laughs> um, so, cameras, do you feel – do you use cell cameras? Let's start with that. Yes. Okay. Do you feel like they make you a better deer hunter or they just give you better information? Yes. 
both. I, love that. I would say they I would say they do both. Um but I would also say that I've never killed a deer because of a cell camera. I've killed a deer because of a lot of boots on the ground. I've killed deer because of assumptions that sometimes could have been wrong but ended up being right. I've killed deer because of gut feelings because of things I picked up on because of stacking factors. Like I've killed deer for a lot of reasons, but I would say that a cell camera in the hands of the right hunter is definitely a very deadly thing, especially if you have signal in the places you need it, where, you know, if I lived in a different spot, I'd probably utilize them a lot more here down in the bottoms where I like to hunt. I just don't get a ton of signal. So maybe it doesn't help me as much as it would if I could hunt some flatter stuff with good reception. But, um, but my one response to the to the question and you know it's i talk about it a lot and i think that i think that there's a lot of people that like to like to point fingers and I, i'm friends with a lot of them I'm, I'm very good friends with a lot of people mm-hmm. that i would say that for me from my perspective is i don't want to degrade the way that anybody thinks about hunting or wants to hunt or like say that one way is better than the other one style is better than the other like my goal with everything that I do in the hunting community at all is to try to just make sure people have good memories, man. Like I want to help somebody go out and have a good memory. And I don't think that putting somebody down because they have a specific tactic or a thing they use is, is helping that. So I just, I try to stay out of it as much as possible. I think that what we should do as hunters is we should go out and we should hunt for ourselves and we should hunt for our family and for tradition and for fun and for food and we shouldn't worry about what anybody else has to say about the style that you're doing because man i'll tell you what i'm i'm here to tell you i'm the i'm like the focal point for a lot of negativity unfortunately i got i get a lot of things directed my way from a lot of different people but you know what i it it's bothered me at points but i've really grown to just be able to shrug that off because i'm doing what i love to do Mm -hmm. and what i enjoy to do I'm not hurting anybody in the process. Nobody out there running a cell camera is hurting anybody else in the process. If you're, if your concern is that people have a, a one up on you, I think you just need to go work harder and then they won't have a one up on you. If you want my honest opinion, I don't think that people should speak too much on things that they haven't done themselves. I think that's a big thing where it's hard to say a cell camera is really deadly when you've never used one. You know, you're just going off of, what you think not what you know um but yeah i would say that we just need to stand together as a hunting community man i really do whether it's north whether it's south you know i went down to the chattanooga mobile hunter expo show and i had a blast with all you southern guys we had a like (laughs) i love talking deer with you you guys are as passionate as it gets you know i you're you're very serious about the gear the questions i was getting were blowing my mind i was like yeah i mean i really don't know how to answer that because it's a really good question like that's a that's a very in-depth detailed question i can tell that a lot of guys take it seriously down there but you know we we just all need to be on the same team because every single day we're losing a piece of land somewhere we're losing resources somewhere and there's a lot of people just trying to put us into the ground and eliminate this thing i saw a study that came out today it popped up on my phone it's like an ad or something that that uh like the percentage of people that approve of hunting yeah, is I saw the same thing. declining in the United yeah. States. And that should scare every one of us. And it scares me because I know that being a, a hunter, a bow hunter, and just a hunter in general and a sportsman over the course of my life has changed my life completely. 
I mean, there is nothing that is the same. And the majority of my favorite moments in my life were based around my grandpa, my dad, my brother, my son doing something outdoors. And the, the minute that people have leverage because we're fighting each other to try to take that away, we have a problem. You know, if we're split and divided on all these different things as a whole, we're very weak. But if we can come together and just say, you know what? I don't care how you hunt, man. I don't care if you use a longbow or a, or a 30-06. I don't care if you use a cell cam or a trail cam. It doesn't matter to me. You're hunting and you're not hurting anybody else and you're enjoying yourself. Mm-hmm. That's what's really important. You know, if we all came together and did that, now we're strong as a community and what we need to be is strong so things don't get taken away from us because it would be a damn shame for our boys to grow up and lose hunting and not be able to do it and not be able to feel what we feel every fall. I I agree. I, I think that the only caveat, I was going to hit you with a bunch of other stuff, but you, you, you ended this on such a really positive note. I'm not going to do that to you, but I, I could kind of care less if hunting persists, right? Like in, in, and I don't mean that I'm sure somebody just bristled when I said that, like, it's not, it doesn't put food on my table. I can put food on my table. It, it doesn't shelter me. I shelter myself. Right. So it's an optional thing that we have. And I know everybody thinks, you know, this is a right. This is, a th- it, it is an optional frivolous thing that we, we get, we get the privilege of participating in. What I fear is if we lose hunting, we lose wild places. And if we lose wild places, then I think societally we're going to regress very, very quickly. I was uh, fortunate to grow up in a place where I had abundant access to the woods. And I had moments in my childhood that were very, very rough as a family. And the one consistent thing I had, the safety net that I had, was the woods. They didn't care about what was going on in the humans' lives, right? Like that was a a societal construct that we were trying to figure out, right? You could go and escape. And the same thing is said now in life when things get tough and I start to get overwhelmed and I need that safe space. And that sounds really hippie and crunchy. And, but when you need that safe space, I can go out into the woods and everything else just kind of falls apart. And whether that's a walk, whether that's hunting. And I think I'm most concerned with what you said, we're continuing to fracture ourselves. Some of this is because of outside pressures. Some of it's because of inward pressures. And I think it's also just a shifting dynamic of, of things are getting kind of difficult in the hunting space, right? For a variety of different reasons. But I feel like the, you hit the nail on the head when you said the last thing we can do is show any fracture outward. And we need to all look at this and say, have we done a great job of preserving, conserving, and, and, and making sure that this is here and sustainable? If the answer is yes, let's not quibble over lighted knocks. Let's not quibble over, over mechanical broadheads. Let's not quibble over cell cameras. It's not material. And if it's not material, let's worry about the people who are putting up billboards in downtown Atlanta trying to take this from us because that's, that is the real existential threat, not a, a 2% uptick in, in mature bucks being killed because of cell cameras. I mean, that's yeah. just, it's just not material. It doesn't matter. I we can't, agree we that. can't do anything. We can't, if, if, if we don't have the access, then none of this matters. And that's the foundation, the habitat. Yeah, I totally agree with that, man. Well, Bubba, I am going to let you go. I am going to tease that uh, I have once again, year three or four, uh, reached out and said, hey, man, if you want to come try your hand down here in Florida, I've got a place for you to stay. Um, And it sounds like every year we get a little closer uh, late season to hosting you down here. So the only thing holding me back is if I can fill that Ohio tag, Uh I'll I'll be there, man. I'll be there. Do you, uh, you mind if I bring Derek? 
with me. We'll be filming it and everything. Is that cool? Let's talk, let's talk offline about the details, but yeah, I don't, I don't see any issue at all. Yeah. Sounds good, I brother. Got some ideas for you. Um, Perfect. but yeah, I would, we can, I'd love to go down there and get my butt kicked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll talk more, man. Uh, but so let's do this. Let's send everybody off. Uh, where can they find you? Your newest podcast, your new full-time gig, tell everybody where they can go. Well, first and foremost, thank you guys for listening. If you made it to this portion of the show, because I know that, uh, it's, you know, these things get a little bit long, but, um, but I'm over on the latitude outdoors page a lot now. So I started a full-time job with them and I'm running the latitudes in session podcast. So if you haven't heard about that, uh, basically I'm going around and just trying to find, you know, some high level guests and just trying to take a deep dive into one specific thing that they do well and just trying to be as detailed as possible. So, you know, I'm trying to just take my mind and try to pull detail out of this because a lot of times, like, that's the thing that I'm always looking for. And you do a very great job of this, by the way, but like, I'm always trying to, I'm always searching for that little extra detail in podcasts and, and some guys really, really knock it out of the park. And those are the ones that I gravitate towards like yours. So, um, but yeah, over on the latitudes and session podcast, we launch every Monday and Friday, we do have the YouTube series in session going as well, which Basically, that was me listening to podcasts and being like, man, I wish I had a visual of what this guy's talking about. And so yeah. I finally had some resources and I was like, you know what? We're going to go film these guys actually do this out in their terrain. So we have Greg Glitzinger in the Salt Marshes up in New Jersey, uh, Ryan Glitzky in the mountains of Pennsylvania. I did one in Kentucky of an out-of-state hunt this year. And next year, we're really ramping that thing up. It's going to be a blast. I've got some great guys on the, the list already. I think you guys are really going to enjoy that. Um, we also have the grit that just launched over on YouTube as well. And that's the, all the hunting stories from last year. So, uh, the last episode was Alex chop went out to Nebraska and killed a stud, absolute beautiful buck early season. And we've got a Michigan hunt coming up this week and, uh, yeah, we're going to keep on pumping those things out. So, so thank you guys for listening to this. Thanks for listening, you know, over the last three years. And I'm absolutely honored to be one of the last episodes on here, man. I appreciate you, man. I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to seeing you this January. I think, uh, there, there's a small part of me that's like, I hope you don't kill anything, but it's like a really, really, t- like really, like really small, but I have to acknowledge that it is there just for my own personal validation. I love it. But, but most importantly, I'm really looking forward for the opportunity to learn from you, man. Cause I know you're going to walk in, you're going to be like, Hey dummy, look at that right there. And I'm like, Oh my freaking God, you got to be kidding me. So I, I appreciate you, bud. Yeah. Fresh set of eyes. Never, never hurts anybody. That's for no, sure. No, 